Hey there, it's Carrie from Wrap Your Head Around Silks. You're listening to the Expecting Aerialist podcast, and I got my little girl here with me. She wants to say hi. So today we have my dear friend Fagan Harlow. We were tour partners for Motley Crue, and she has really delved into learning about how pain and trauma stay in the tissues of the body. She's studied a lot. She's a body worker, and she's going to share her knowledge with us today. Here we go. Fagan is like my soul sister, and we met because back in 2012, I was put on the Motley Crue tour to replace one of the aerialists, and Fagan was the aerialist that was already the aerial captain, and she had been on the tour for quite a while. How long, Fagan? I joined them at the first residency in Las Vegas, the beginning of 2012. Um, So we did, I believe, a three-week residency in the Hard Rock, uh, joined for their summer tour. um, And that was about a three-month run with, uh, gosh, forgive me, I could be off on this, but I'm pretty sure it was with Kiss on that time. No, it was with Kiss because Kiss was was still on it when I joined. Perfect. Excellent. The band Kiss, they are so special, those guys. Oh, yes. Iconic, for (laughs) sure. Those personalities, something else. Yep. Yeah, yeah. They're like caricatures of people. It's it's awesome. (laughs) I end up getting this job, and they put me on right before we go to Australia. So me and Fagan did a little rehearsal in L.A., because Fagan's based in San Diego. So she drove up. We met for the first time. Got along so well and then started a rehearsal. And then I've told the story on this podcast before about my, what is it? Baptism by fire. <laughs> the Australian <laughs> Motley Crue tour. Uh, <laughs> I've already told that story. So when I met Fagan, she was just, even our production manager, the one that hired me said, Fagan looks one way and then her personality is kind of not what you would expect because she's got tattoos and she's like super buff and she's, you know, you had your hair like shaved on the side at the time. You just had this super edgy look and then you're just like this super sweet, like holistic yogi chick. (laughs) (laughs) And just so, such a, such a wonderful person. So not that tatted edgy people aren't wonderful people, but he was right. People would know me about suspension before they even met me. So you throw things like chains, modifications, tattoos, um, suspension, and then that would already give people uh, this idea of who I was. And um, I was so uh, so grateful, honestly, when I got to meet Carrie, because you were just such an open, easy aerial partner, just right off the bat to get along with choreography working with you is super smooth and easy and um yeah it was one of those things like you said just soul sisters like immediately we're like this is gonna click this is gonna work and those shows man those shows with you were yeah unforgettable for sure yeah we had a good time we also got in trouble a lot together if we were like (laughs) (laughs) like one count off of each other because we're doing duo silks our production manager is this he likes to yell he's a yeller and he would just yell (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> get in trouble. It was like we were in school getting in trouble. Um, mind you, I think we did a pretty good job generally. Um, but so when I first met Fagan, you know, when she says modifications, she's got some physical modifications and she's got the tats and her thing at the time was um, chains. And for the show, she had a 
forgive me if I'm wrong, over seven minute chains act, like who would do that to themselves? But seven minutes and the the rig was two points. They were loops, but they were seven to 10 feet apart. So she would basically start on the ground in a skin, the cat. She was in the middle. And as the points go up, <laughs> her arms get pulled out to the sides. (laughs) Right, that's a thought I was having. Whatever you guys are thinking, that's what I was thinking. So basically, she's coming out of a full skin the cat while her arms are getting pulled apart from her body as she gets dragged up, you know, 25 (laughs) feet to a 30-foot rig. Eventually, let's go of the point that's not in the center and then does the chain act on one loop. Is that correct? Am I remembering this correctly? Yeah, you got it down pretty pat. Um, we were, <laughs> when we arrived at that, uh, that tour round in Australia, I remember touching base um, and that was when the production manager was just like, oh, so we got this cool idea and we actually want to just go ahead and, and separate your chains. And I just had that like deer in headlights kind of a look. And I was just like, wait, what? Um, I'd never rehearsed it this way. Um, I'd always done like the two loop style, similar to what you'd see with like a span set or sometimes um, strap loops. And so it was rigged on one point and they were separated 10 feet apart. And Carrie totally recalls this, right? I forgot actually that I started in a skin the cat. Uh, oh, I will never forget that. I'm like, bitch is crazy. <laughs> I don't know where I got that idea or how that happened, but. Um, yeah, so as, as, uh, the winch would, you know, go ahead and, and lift the apparatus, um, I would let go of one chain and swing over to one side, do a couple of moves, and then I would time it. I would wait till the other chain came back on the backswing. So then I would grab the other chain. I would swing on to the one that was 10 feet away. Okay. I don't have that memory at all. <laughs> the reason I remember this, Carrie. And you know what? Honestly, Tommy Lee will probably remember this because there was one night on my swing trajectory, I almost got impaled by one of those um, flagpoles and I didn't see it. I honestly was clueless, but I caught Tommy Lee's eyes. And then it was after the show. He was just like, I cannot believe you just survived that. (laughs) I was just like, what? What even happened? Like I knew something did because we caught that eye like block in the middle of the act. And I was like, you've just freaked out on me. Like what happened? Um, but yeah, yeah. So there was some swinging action back and forth. I called it my George of the jungle moment. Um, but yeah, it was a crazy, it was a fun act for sure, but crazy times. Well, and you did, you did like real drops and I just remember thinking, okay, she's backstage. She's getting ready for this act. This is what she's wearing. You guys, she's wearing this, she's wearing the leather boots that you do for like trapeze, But besides that, she's just wearing fishnets and a pair of cute little bottoms and like a bra top and a vest over it and some gloves. Yeah. (laughs) Like, like no protection around the thighs, no protection around the hips, you know, like around the vag, nothing. (laughs) And she's doing like setting up for double dive rolls. She's setting up for hip key drops in the loop. Like stuff that I wouldn't want to do with just fishnets on, even if I was in a hammock, even if I was on a span set. 
this is my first like introduction to Fagan. Like we're getting to know each other. I'm watching her through the first couple shows because as my listeners know, I didn't have any rehearsal. We just had shows <laughs> and we just dived straight in and I was watching her do this act every night and just blown away, like mentally blown away by this. And this is a lot where we're going to talk about today because Fagan is also, she is now a full-time body worker. She has invested a lot of time and energy into researching this stuff because it's her job. And then also because she's just really into it. (laughs) She's just so fascinated by the stuff about pain science and trauma in the tissues. And, you know, she's just going to, we're going to dive into pain science and and trauma to the body and how how an aerial practice can really affect our tissues and you know the bodies that we work so hard to take care of. Let's get let's get into how you got to the point where you were you were when I met you. No bruising anymore from it. You didn't feel the need for protection. How did you get there? What was it like? What is your process now with it? What is your thought process now about how you got there and, and everything? Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's a really great question, especially for a lot of people that might be curious about getting into a, um, an apparatus such as chains. You know, I think the first thing is when I approach the apparatus, there's a lot of fumbling, um, first and foremost, with the rigging setup, right? Um, we may have opportunity around like silks or layers or traps, a little bit more common um, apparatus to jump on them and feel out like our sizing or what our preferences are. But when you come across something like chains, um, it's really rare that we have an opportunity to experience them before we make that investment. The challenging part ultimately was finding shackles that uh, steel shackles that would fit, like the pin would fit through the chain. Um, so that actually was kind of a determining factor for the diameter of my chain when I first started was how I could rig it. And what I learned over time was depending on the diameter of the chain I was working on, it affected my grip strength. So if I had a, a larger uh, you know, chain link, so to speak, um, a larger gauge, then I was much more inclined to need gloves. Um, I started off with like full-fledged motorcycle gloves um, and I burned through those so quick. The seams would just rip, um, especially through the fingers. Um, And I eventually went down to over, this was over time and learning experience. I went down to fingerless motorcycle gloves. So I always stuck with leather, um, but the, the fingerless ones just seemed to hold up a lot longer. Um, and then I got to a place too, where if I had smaller chain links, I think I ended up having three different diameters over my, my, you know, full fledged chain career. And the smallest diameter was always the easiest for me to grip onto. So I did a lot of performances with no gloves. Um, it was just a much smaller chain that I could get like a really nice solid grip around. Um, I, I, I did use gaiters. Carrie mentioned that before. Bless them. I don't think I could have done it without them. <laughs> um, but, you know, uh, just kind of the understanding of what's happening in your tissues when you're getting kind of this repetitive exposure to um, essentially what, what we know is like bruising, right? We we might visibly have bruising. We might have that like bruise to the touch um, type of the feeling. Um, And this usually happens when you come to an apparatus, um, you know, initially. You can even have uh, silk bruising, you know, if you're doing drops and you're landing at the back of your knees, things like that. 
small blood vessels that are, are being broken or damaged, right? And so this is why you might have some visible blood that would come to the surface for this bruising. Ideally, these will heal within about 10 to 14 days. Um, there's four phases of healing um, that we can kind of monitor just to see really uh, to what extent of, of damage we might be doing to our tissues. You know, when we look at something like chains or now there's a lot of dynamic drops on Lyra, which is another really um, hard surface apparatus. Um, when we're continuously getting these small contusions, these small bruisings, we just want to monitor, make sure that it's going through the four phases of healing so that we don't end up with something more severe. And I'll give you an example because I did get one on Motley. Um, the first phase of healing when we're getting this soft tissue contusion, this bruising, is what they call hemostasis phase. Um, and this is essentially the physiological response to stop bleeding. Um, we essentially want, the body wants to keep blood in the damaged blood vessel um, so that it doesn't uh, kind of overtake the area. Right. The next phase we move into is, is inflammation. And, and inflammation is a healthy process. Um, there's definitely a point where it can work against us, but overall, inflammation is good. These damaged blood vessels uh, create substances, bradykinin, substance P, uh, histamine. Um, and these are all agents that, if left lingering, can start to create discomfort. Um, so the inflammation phase, what it does is it brings in a whole bunch of white blood cells with nutrients and enzymes to go ahead and remove um, these, these chemical sources of, of the bradykin in substance P, uh, histamine, right? Um, I say all of these because these are all the same um, uh, constituents of a trigger point, right? So this is kind of an interesting segue when we look at it from a bodywork perspective. I'm sure that there's a lot of listeners out there who've probably had, you know, um, some, some body work that have had some points in their shoulders um, that are just, you know, where you want to just jump off the table. You're like, how can that possibly be so intense? Um, and those are the same substances that are actually locked in your tissues. Um, and so, so you're talking from a lay, from a layman's perspective, you're talking about that like day right after it's, it's, it looks bruised and it's also inflamed. And this is what you're talking about. Correct. Correct. Okay. Yeah. Well, thank you for, for getting some clarification there. Yes. Yeah, so, you know, if you're training your apparatus, you get that initial kind of uh, a bruise uh, post, you know, a day of training. Um, these would be the healing phases that you would go through that hemotasis uh, or stasis phase into the inflammation phase. Um, and, and so we want uh, that inflammation to actually come in to go ahead and remove these, uh, uh, these inflammatory um, uh, chemicals that are associated with these damaged blood vessels. The next phase we move into is called the proliferation phase. This is when collagen and extracellular matrix start to come into the area to rebuild the soft tissue, right? So especially in cases if you're on chains or uh, Lyra trapeze, any, any apparatus truly, um, if you're getting repetitive exposure to... Um, you know, probably some pretty hard drops um, and there's starting to be some, some surface level tissue damage for the most part. Um, but what will happen is the body's going to go ahead and start to bring in uh, new substances to go ahead and heal that tissue. And that's collagen and extracellular matrix. Um, if you've ever had like, let's say uh, a silk burn, right? 
and uh, you start to get that like scab that'll come over to start to heal that tissue, right? Um, part of that, like if you got a really deep burn, you're going to notice that the tissue that's repairing underneath it might be kind of a whole bunch of different layers. Maybe it's kind of thick. Um, and so the final phase is uh, known as maturation. And what it does is actually dehydrates the this previous tissue that's come in this collagen this extracellular matrix it starts to dehydrate it so that the tissues are no longer um, a whole bunch of just mix-matched cells and it starts to what they call cross-link or cross-hatch so that you get this um, like I always see like a hashtag in my head when I say this so all of a sudden that the skin starts to heal or the tissues beneath it the connected tissue starts to heal beneath it in a strong linked pattern so that uh, further tissue damage is going to be reduced right we'll go through this healing phase the, the four I just described within about 10 to 14 days um, if it's really deep, um, let's say sometimes, you know, I'm sure there's some listeners out there as well that have that like really deep muscle bruise where often you don't actually have a, um, a discoloration. Um, sometimes it's just that really deep penetrating sensation. Um, those can take anywhere up to three to six months to actually heal, to go through these, these four different phases. Really? Because the the fibers are actually like really broken. Like um, it's it's just a matter of of kind of essentially like depth of the tissue, right? Of okay, your your accessing point is kind of from a surface level down through several layers of tissues. I see. Okay, right. Um, and so it's it's. I'm not going to say that it couldn't happen, but it's rare that you're just damaging the tissue that's super, super deep. If you're getting like a, a muscle contusion, you're, you're essentially done cellular damage, um, which again is, is healthy and normal. Like we experience it all the time with injury, um, but it's repairing all those layers of tissues. So there's just a much bigger healing process that's going on. Okay. I see. So when you first started chains, like what were your bruises like? Were they like, Okay. Were they like, <laughs> like how bad was it? <laughs> it was definitely like full leg, um, you know, full hip type of stuff. Um, I know I'm sure there's somebody out there that's had this too. Uh, I would always get super impressed because sometimes I literally would get chain links that would show up. Like I would get the actual patterning of a chain and I would get like three or four of them in a row. Um, to me, wow. I always thought that was super cool, but, <laughs> um, <laughs> I think I would have different words for it. It's super <laughs> cool. So when you first started and then in your practice, you kept on like, how long did it take for your body to not have that fight or flight and just, you know, this is normal. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a, how really long did point. that take? Um, you know, I think, I think it was probably about five, I'd say probably about five months of training chains, pretty much day in and day out, like maybe about three hours a day um, before oh, I finally God, landed a, a beast. show. I had the time. I had the time. I had the, you know, I was- You had I the was, will. You had the discipline. Oh my God. That, oh. <laughs> so five or six months. I mean, also Fagan is not one to go into something lightly. Like when she does it, she's serious about it. So- there's some truth to that. There's some truth to that. I won't lie. So, so five to six, and your and your goal was to be able to perform. So, you ended up. Was this what you were pre preparing for the tour that you 
that I met you on? No, I actually started performing. I was in my first stage show in Las Vegas on Chains in 2009. So okay. I, I'd been doing them for probably about three years before uh, got picked up with Molly. And so your Chains practice now, are you just take, I feel like you have taken a break for a while. Is that correct? I have, I have. And I've actually taken a pretty Brit, pretty pretty big break from all of aerials at the moment. Um, I've really dove down this uh, pain science, neuroscience um, train, honestly, because there's an interesting segue that we, when we start stepping pain that happens is uh, acute pain and chronic pain actually uh, respond very differently in the body. Mm. And so I, to me, they weren't, um, like matrix exclusive, I wouldn't say that the constant exposure to uh, tissue damage from chains led me down into a chronic pain cycle, but it was a factor in it. Um, I had a lot of other autoimmune um, situations that were brewing under the surface while I was with Motley. Um, And so that's what really just opened up a new um, doorway. Uh, I actually had been a body worker um, like previous to Motley and throughout all of it, but it's what really put me down the path of, of um, really just learning a lot more about how the body interprets pain, what that process looks like. Yeah. I remember we would have lots of conversations on the road and you were just dealing with some chronic pain issues that were not going away. And then after we left tour, same thing, it just kept on going. And I, you know, it's just so hard to have pain that you can't put your finger on and that no one seems to be able to figure out. And I understand why you went down that rabbit hole because you were trying to heal yourself. So, so Fagan and I got on a phone call before this to talk about, because I mean, she's just got so much knowledge in that brain of hers. So we wanted to focus this. So we wanted to talk about pain science and trauma in the tissue. And she told me there are five different sources. And if you could start with those, and then we'll kind of go down the the list. So one of the first ways our body accumulates trauma in the tissues is injury or impact, right? We just had this conversation about how, um, you know, consistent force uh, on the body with a apparatus of any sort, really, we're getting these um, repetitive exposures to, to shock absorption or the need for shock absorption. So we have um, injury and impact trauma um, and an injury could be, uh, you know, really anything. Many, many of us have already experienced in our lifetimes of just twisting our ankle the wrong way, um, turning your head around too quickly to, you know, look behind your car when you're, you're backing up. But for aerialists, a lot of the times it's, it's going to come down to, you know, a shoulder injury of some sort, maybe a hip flexor injury, um, things of these natures. Um, but impact also, um, being in that, in our category of aerialist as, um, you know, these drop forces that we're exposing ourselves to. Yeah. And we talked about, we kind of talked about all the different, um, apparatuses and we, you know, not scientifically, but we're like, okay, it seems like bungee silks hammock is a little softer on the body. Rope straps come next, trapeze, lira, and then chains. There are other apparatuses, but we didn't go too far deep into it. But if you think about if you're on maybe a lira or chains or even a trapeze, you do a big drop and it doesn't have a lot of give where the silks does. Mm-hmm. And our body is the only thing there that's going to 
absorb any of the shock. We have to absorb it because the apparatus is not. Is that how you explained it to me? Is that correct? Yeah, no, I'm totally with you. If if we have a certain level of, of shock absorption in our apparatus, um, you know, it, it helps us uh, or helps our physical body. But if we're working with an apparatus that's a little more malleable or less malleable, excuse me, something like chains um, or a lira, uh, depending on what your how it's rigged above, uh, your body is going to be taking those shock forces, you know. And and we know just from sheer exposure of how many successful uh, aerialists are out there um, and healthy bodies that it's not something to be overly concerned with, but it is a factor in, in, in recognizing um, how we train. Um, and so there's some different ways that we can uh, really kind of support our body in, in training for this exposure of, of impact trauma, right? Um, essentially, I like to think of uh, having equal activation and equal length ability, right? If I were to take an example of your bicep being in half flexion, right? So a 90 degree angle in your arm and the bicep is neither in full contraction. It's also not in its full resting length, right? But if this is becomes the bicep's home, if this becomes where the bicep knows that it's like, this is my, my, where I live. Um, and we can relate this to like a compensation pattern, right? Like if somewhere in the body we have a holding pattern and this is interpreted as that's home and then we apply force to the forearm, we're going to put extra strain on that bicep and it's going to land in the tendon and it's going to land in the joint. So how can we protect our body when we're experiencing these, uh, um, you know, high forces is to essentially be able to train our body so that it has full activation and full length capacity, right? We want to give uh, the, uh, essentially the, the stimulation um, to whatever muscle groups we're working with that they know how long they can actually access, right? We also want them to be super responsive so that if they hit that full length of access, let's just say we're doing... Um, something uh, where you're landing in kind of a, a backward stacks position, right? And you're mostly, it's going to be your spine and a bit through that hip flexor that is going to take that impact, that force. So how can we allow those muscles to be able to um, be soft enough that they can reach their, their uh, a nice extension, right? Through the hip flexor and through the spine that it can absorb that shock, but then also come back to protect the joints, right? So um, all of our joints are ideally have, uh, you know, mobilization, whether it's a glide or a slide. Um, so we want to make sure that those guys have the accessibility to move. Um, and it's through that equal active uh, and lengthening that we can make, ensure that we can start to support that joint a little bit better. Um, so I always think about, uh, you know, mobility and stability um, in terms of our joint health um, and activation and length when I'm thinking about more of the muscular or myofascial aspects. Um, okay, let me, let, me, let me stop you because um, my brain is working very hard right now. <laughs> Fagan always does this to me. She goes, I'm sorry. Like she, goes she, she puts me in a mind spin and I'm like, hold on. So... I do understand what you're saying. So, but when it comes to like layman's terms, training our bodies to have this accessibility of length 
and activation and myofascial glide. What does that boil down to? Yeah, it's a great question. So um, for essentially for activation, uh, what I really like to work with is uh, eccentric loading is kind of an easy way that we could look at that is we'll take our same bicep example, right? Is to go ahead and train that bicep to be able to access its full length is I would go ahead and from that same 90 degree or I could go from full contraction is go ahead and uh, work the the eccentric contraction, I'm going to go ahead and lengthen that bicep while it's holding load, while it's holding weight, right? And that's one way I can train that muscle that you can access this length. You can go this full distance. Um, and so it's, it's, it's a great way of training when it comes to shock absorption. Um, eccentric training is, is great for a lot of reasons, but um, it's fantastic when we're looking at shock absorption. So would a good example of this be, okay, you do a regular Russian climb up the fabric and you go, when you're at the top, you put your hands in on the fabric into your chest and you lower yourself down, straight arms, and then wrap the feet and then repeat. Is that yes. reverse climb what you're talking about? Fantastic. It's a great example. Yeah. Woo woo. <laughs> Sometimes my brain works too, Fagan. <laughs> I love she's coming with the applications, <laughs> real life. Yeah, so so our reverse a re, reverse climb mm-hmm. um, would be a great eccentric exercise where you're going from a short arm to a long arm with control and 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 slowly, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Okay, so training that, and then also, if I can use my wonderful example, that when we're doing this, the shoulder blades are also gliding on the ribcage, and that's your glide. Yes, yes, and then that's healthy mechanics of a joint. So the joint is being supported in um, its ability to move the way it's designed to move. And so this process of, of training the entire length of the joint and the joint range of motion, sorry, the joint range of motion, and the glide of the bones working like they should be, that will give us more protection in our body when we take on a big drop. Is that the thesis? That's, that's essentially the direction. Yes. Uh, yes, I agree. I love it. Okay. So you guys just imagine me and Fagan in a tour bus <laughs> with plastic glasses of tree, cheap red wine bought from the local CVS because we can't really leave the area. <laughs> And some like leftover food from catering. Mm -hmm. These are the conversations that we would have, I feel like, in the middle of the night. I think this happened many times. Definitely happened many times. And this is why I knew (laughs) immediately upon meeting you, I was like, oh yeah, this is going to work. Oh my God, we got so nerdy on Ariel. We were like, so if we did this and blah, 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 and hip key over (laughs) and straighten the arm and then bring the leg through. And the other people on tour were like, you guys are fucking annoying. <laughs> this is very true too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. So funny. So, okay. You, you kind of dove in, but I wanted to actually enumerate what you had said to me in the prep for this wonderful conversation. Yeah. Trauma or tissue. Number, number one, repetitive motion. Number two, onset of injury or force, which is what you delved into. That's what Physiological, social conditioning and choice over time, holding patterns. So those are the five ways, and us aerialists, we actually do all five. 
Yeah. So I'll, I'll segue back. So thanks for bringing me back to that, Carrie. Um, yeah. So injury and impact, we, we went real deep into, um, uh, cumulative injury disorder or repetitive motion. Um, essentially, yeah. Repetitive stress, um, definitely as aerialist, you know, even something as simple as if, uh, just doing a regular French climb, if you constantly are using your same side or you constantly climb with one arm, uh, grip above the other. I'm, your French climb is my regular climb, right? Yeah. That's why I said regular French. Cause I was like, people's language is different. My Russian is also your Russian. Is that right? Yes. We're same on that. Okay, cool. Yes. <laughs> uh, you know, that's an example of just a repetitive habitual stress of constantly exposing a limb a movement pattern over and over and over. Um, so we can get repetitive stress essentially, um, via the tissues um again it landing in chains constantly from doing a drop that could be a repetitive stress um biomechanics can be a repetitive stress uh we talked a little bit about like if you have a holding pattern um right and so now you're asking uh movement to happen on top of that holding pattern that can be a cumulative injury um uh, set up. Um, we could also just have unique anatomy. There are people that have a 13th rib and that can change the mechanics of, yep. That is, is, <laughs> she looked at my face. I was like, what? <laughs> like, where is this 13th rib? Because then it's not symmetrical. Often when people have it, it will be uh, in the cervicals and it can create thoracic outlet syndrome. So the mechanics of how they end up using their Ooh. arm, especially in overhead positions, can start to get a little little funky. Man, I learn something new on this podcast every day. <laughs> this, is why, this is why I've come to talk to you, Carrie. I mean, you. you know, the best part about getting older is knowing full well that I know so little Oh man. And even the more I know, the more I find out how much I don't know. Life is, life is amazing. So now we've talked about, have we talked about all the ways trauma can live in our tissues? No, we got three others. Okay. Oh my God. Keep on going. Social conditioning. This is a really interesting one that a lot of us have probably at some point it's been impacted by. Um, let's just say that you grew up really fast. Um, around your peers and maybe there's some teasing. Like emotionally? No. Like, <laughs> <laughs> like your bones, like your body grew really fast. Your body grew really fast. Fagan, I'm still waiting for that to happen. <laughs> I think for a lot of us aerialists, somehow we just got a little, I, I know I got stunted in the growth department. Yeah. If you, if you grew up physically faster than your friends and you're really tall, if there was like um, comments that were made about it or attention was brought to it. Uh, sometimes people will literally shrink themselves. They'll, they'll start to hunch over to accommodate, to, to try to make themselves shorter around, you know, their peers. And this can start to create trauma in the tissues. This can start to impact the holding patterns that we may exist in our body, right? If we do that for long periods of time, uh, this can have a very vast long-term long chain reaction. And this is where we start to go into chronic pain, right? Chronic trauma in the tissues. Or, you know, another example too, social conditioning is I, here in the States, it's really common for mothers to carry their children like on their side or on their hip, right? But if we look at Africa, which we do a lot when we're looking at body movement and we're accessing um, biomechanics is they'll carry their baby on their back or their front, 
right? Um, so they're always having some type of a strap mechanism to go ahead and support their child where they have all their limbs available and free. Not to say that you don't see that in the States, but it's not nearly as commonplace. So that's one way that social conditioning, it's what we're exposed to, that all of a sudden influences the way that we're going to go ahead and, and move our body. But we have to look at what is the long-term exposure of doing that and how does that actually impact our body? We have choice. Um, a perfect example of choice is our children learn how to walk by watching their parents, right? We, our language when we're little is uh, essentially it's feeling state, but it's also visual, right? So we will mimic the way our parents walk to go ahead and start to learn how to make those movement patterns. Um, so if, you know, uh, dad, for example, has a small limp because he hurt his knee, years ago and had some surgery, then the kid is actually going to go ahead and start to assume this little, but they're going to go ahead and mimic this little uh, movement pattern that's going to emulate their father because it's what they're exposed to. So that's actually a choice. So you're saying my child's going to be really, really skilled at twerking because that's what I do at home. <laughs> you know it, Carrie. You know it. I know I it. I mean, yep. mm-hmm. shake your moneymaker. I mean, she is. I was on a bar dancing in heels when I was pregnant. So I think it's going to happen no matter what I do. She's got it in her, man. She's got the music, the vibes. She's got the vibes. She can move. She's got the vibes. Mm-hmm. It's amazing. Yeah. It's so cool to watch. My mind's blown slightly on this trauma in our tissues and I sit here and wonder what I do to my body every day because I still have the problem of like, oh, I'm going to demonstrate this triple star, but I've not really warmed up that much. Mm-hmm. And I'm also not that young. So something to think about. <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've gotten off pretty, pretty, pretty lucky though. The last way we actually hold trauma in the tissues is psychological trauma. We can take that even from an aerialist scope of if we had a fall before and we can hold that psychological trauma of the fall, not even the physical trauma of the fall, but the psychological trauma of that fall, we can hold that in our body. Um, and we may move differently in the air because of that. Maybe we have a little bit of freeze it's still in our body. Um, birth trauma can be held in the body. And that could be from a psychological standpoint, uh, just as much as physical, right? Um, injury trauma. Let's just say that we, you know, have had an injury on our knee and we had surgery some time ago. Um, and there's the psychological fear when we get back up into the air of like, is my knee going to do what I need it to do? Is it going to protect me? Is it going to, you know, support me? Um, And then we also have, when it comes to what I think we often think about as psychological trauma is like shock and developmental trauma. Um, And so these are the events that can happen to us um, and also the things that happened to us as we were growing up through our developmental ages. So yeah, it's, it's pretty fascinating that we have these five different ways that can really impact our tissues and uh, what's being held in our tissues. And people always say we like to hold our emotions in our hips Mm. And can you can you take that statement and make sense of it? Our hips are, you know, again, they're, they're, they're part of our center of gravity. And so there's a very grounding uh, aspect to them. They keep us very um, earthed within gravity. And in this, there can be a lot of storing um this is an interesting visual. I don't necessarily just go around talking about this on podcasts, but there can be almost this like 
cesspooling that happens down within our pelvic bowl, right? Um, if things aren't moving as ideal as we'd like, um, if there's stagnation in the tissues, if there's um, definitely if there's trauma in the tissues, then there can be a lot that gets pooled down at this, this lower center of gravity. And so a lot of us suppress emotion, right? Uh, just in Western culture in general, but a lot of cultures across the board is uh, we're not necessarily celebrated to speak to uh, necessarily uh, our emotional states or, or guided on how to emotionally regulate. And so what happens is we swallow this down. We bite our tongue. Right. And so we keep pushing, 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 pushing. And this is where all that energy just really gets contained in the pelvic bowl. Um, and unless we really move and we give some permission for those tissues to start to free up and create some circulation, then um, these are emotions that can very easily be uh, coincided to this, this location in our body for sure. Yeah. You know, I always thought about that, you know, like our bodies store store our emotions. And I was like, well, that's kind of fruity. You know, that's what I was always think. But we are only physical bodies. We don't live in half of a spiritual world where our, our emotions actually just get stored in some type of like ethereal bubble. <laughs> we are physical bodies. And so if you think like your body is the only place it can be stored, mm. these things can be stored unless they are let out. And the way they're let out, a lot of people don't do the things that you need to get it out. It doesn't, it doesn't just come out like poop and pee comes out. Right. <laughs> you know, I, I spent a lot of time talking about poop and pee in the last couple of weeks. And now it's like cesspool in the pelvic floor. You know, <laughs> right. it's just like, we are in the same, we're just going there. Why not? For Why weeks, not? Right? for weeks. But it's true. It's like, if you really think about it, we only have physical bodies it has to go into our body. And so how do we get it out? And for me, you know, I talked a lot about in the past how body work, somebody performing body work on me has freed up my physical voice, mm. has freed up my limbs because, oh my God, I was just like, I had so much like sadness and, and like, you know, after the divorce that I have talked about all the time, you know, it was just trapped in my, it was trapped in my body. And it took many months of body work of that energy release to get it, to get all this stuff out. And so then now I've become one of those fruity people. <laughs> because <laughs> because it, it's the only thing that makes sense to me. Because I'm also very spiritual, not from a religious standpoint. It makes sense to me. You're, 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 you're essentially on to, to, um, this, this bridge between the spirit and the soma, right. Of, um, like you said, we have this physical body, we have a container, we have this place for these things to exist. Where else would it go? And what's beautiful is that pain science is actually caught up to be able to explain why our emotions can be in our tissues. You know, pain, pain exists essentially as uh, a protection mechanism, right? So whenever we're experiencing discomfort in an area of our body, it's essentially sending a signal of danger or damage, 
right? And the purpose of this is to motivate change. It's a survival mechanism. Pain exists for us to uh, facilitate something new or different or shift, right? It, It wants us to bring attention to, to move through that. Um, whether it's physical or emotional, um, uh, psychosomatic, any of these things. And uh, if you actually look at the definition from the International Association for the Study of Pain, their definition of pain is an unpleasant sensory and emotional experience associated with actual or potential tissue damage. Um, So what's fascinating, though, is for years, we were under the, pre- the the premise that there were pain receptors in the body. And there's actually no pain receptors in the body or the brain. What we have is this process called nociception, right? And nociception is what detects if there's what they call noxious stimuli. It's a mechanical, chemical, or thermal effect in the body. So this is the system that's communicating that there's something happening in the body that's calling for attention, right? So in this nociception, there's nociceptors. And these guys will pick up that something's happening in the body, in the tissues, whether it's somatic or visceral, cutaneous uh, skin, um, And it sends that to the central nervous system. And the central nervous system, we can think of as just our our spinal cord and our brain, right? So wherever this location of this discomfort is in our body, these nociceptors will pick up that signal. It'll take it to the spinal cord. It'll send that information to the brain. And then the brain, it governs that information of where to send it. And so it sends it to the thalamus, it sends information to different cortexes, and it sends it to the limbic system, right? The cortexes, and there's a few of them that it'll get sent to, they're uh, involved to make meaning out of this information, this stimulus that just came through, right? And the limbic system is what rules our emotions. It's what houses our emotional state. So what's happening is we're actually just getting a feedback system to interpret information. And so then once it's in the brain, the brain's trying to decipher what to make of this information, right? So again, we don't have pain receptors in the body. We don't even have pain receptors in the brain per se. What we have is a communication system, a messenger system that will take that information from the body, send it up to the brain. The brain then decides what to do with it and how it it filters this information is through a cognitive lens. It'll look at memories. It'll look at past experiences. Um, It'll encompass your thoughts or your attitudes. So you know, if we have, I'm going to go back to this knee injury for whatever reason, we've had a previous knee injury, we had some surgery, um, and then we tweak our knee up in the air, right? Our brain immediately, as soon as it gets this information of this stimulus is going to go into this uh, process of thinking like, oh my gosh, I've been hurt here before. This is what happened. This is what that injury was. Um, All these thoughts are going to come around it. Then this opens the gateway for our emotions right? It's what feeling do I have placed upon that thought? And if the thought carries that idea of like, well, the last time I hurt my knee and I had surgery, I was out of aerial for X amount of months. And 
that makes somebody super sad or depressed, or maybe there's a lot of fear because that's, you know, uh, someone that's a part of their livelihood is in their working in that industry. Um, so that's how the emotional context can get pulled into this picture of, of our perception of pain. Right. And the last and final lens that we look through as the, the brain's trying to decipher what to make of this pain is, is sensory, right. The actual like musculoskeletal, uh, I mentioned visceral or cutaneous, which is our skin is taking all the, um, you know, informational data of what occurred at this location to go ahead and determine like, what is my response to that? But there's no actual determination of that. It is painful. It's what we make of all the information that we've just received from the incident or uh, whatever trauma or injury we may have incurred um, that decides what to do with that. And this is why, for example, if you go to the hospital with an injury, they'll ask you what your pain is from a level of one to 10, because it's our perception of the pain that they're asking for. Right? A hundred percent. A hundred percent. Okay. Pain is relative. Pain is relative. Um, there's such a huge spectrum from person to person about how that fits into whatever their previous experiences may be um, and, and the different conditionings that we've been exposed to. And so a lot of aerialists like to say, I have a high pain th threshold mm -hmm. because we've gone through that process of like, oh, this hurts. Oh, it doesn't hurt anymore. Now this hurts. Ah, uh, that hurt is going away. So how does that fit in? Yeah, fantastic question. Um, so essentially, you know, us aerialists, we're familiar with that process of like, this used to hurt and now it doesn't. And so, um, uh, you know, again, discomfort or pain exists uh, initially to provide our body information about uh, danger or, or tissue damage or damage in general. Um, when we start to uh, determine based on all these other factors, all this information we've accumulated, like, oh, there's no threat or we don't need to be concerned. Then we start to break through um, what is known as sensitization, right? Um, it's, it's sensitization is the amplification of a danger signaling, right? But if we've, we've determined that, that the threat is not and necessary to have this sensitization, we don't need to be sensitive to this experience, then we shift into the desensitization stage. And in that, we can start to build our pain tolerance. You can actually increase your pain tolerance intentionally. Um, and you can do that through, uh, this is actually done through scientific studies. They show that aerobic exercise will actually help increase your pain tolerance. Um, yoga, uh, part of the mindfulness training of yoga can help, um, vocalization actually, like if you're in the middle of, you know, a, a skin, the cat, and it's like, uh, your muscles are just super, you know, tight or sore or whatever, as you're going through this movement, if you actually vocalize like, ow, there's actually a release in that. And so the body doesn't absorb this interpretation of pain as, as intensely. Um, we can also use mental imagery and biofeedback to increase our pain. I tolerance. have a question. Okay. So we're both body workers. My practice is called Carrie's house of pain. <laughs> I like to, I like to lean into it, you know, lean in. So I've got a couple clients and they just curse the whole time. The whole time. And I'm doing myofascia. I'm doing like corrective. So I'm not like trying to give them a good time. <laughs> and uh, I'm trying to get rid of a problem. 
Okay, so my clients cursing, cursing, cursing. Does that actually help? Does that actually more than psychosomatic help their pain tolerance during a session? It's a form of release for sure. It, um, so the answer is yes. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Okay, can be. I mean, there there could be you know uh, kind of an opposite side of that spectrum as well. That maybe there's an attachment to pain. Um, sometimes that exists where. Um, maybe the need to be seen in our pain type of a thing. But for the most part, I'm going off on tangents here, but for the most part, somebody that, you know, has, uh, they're comfortable with expressing themselves. Um, there's, there's a, a release that's happening for them. Um, and it's super welcomed. Yeah. Okay. Second question. Let's just say you're Fagan in 2013 and your body's really <laughs> used to really, really used to chains, but then Somebody like, I don't know, you get your hand caught in a door or you get your toe stepped on, something that is not what your body has been training. Mm-hmm. Is your pain tolerance for everything just heightened or is it something that you're not used to that will hurt just as much as if you didn't do all that pain training? <laughs> I love it. Pain training, number one. (laughs) 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 That's my question. So if I were to like slap you across the face and you're not expecting it, is that going to hurt less because everything else is desensitized? Uh, In theory, I can't say I've tested this out necessarily, but no, it it really does apply across the board. And and part of this is because- She's like, she's like, no taken. <laughs> Carrie's got something she wants to slap. <laughs> uh, let's test this next time I see you. No, I love you. I wouldn't be able to do it. I'd like, I'd like, I would like try and then just wimp out. Uh, well, my pain tolerance is not 2013 shame days either. So <laughs> I'd be feeling it. Over our lifetime, if we're not doing that thing that's really beating us up and we kind of stop, we kind of have to retrain that in our bodies, right? Is it going to hurt again? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'm sure there's a, a lot of people out there that for whatever reason, you know, even maybe this last year or um, at times in their, their aerial exposure have been off their apparatus for um, more than a period of time that they would like, even if it's two weeks, three months, a year. Um, and we notice that when we come back, there's certain things that you're just like, oh man, I have to go through this discomfort again. Oh, you know, just grip strength. My, my knuckles hurt again, where, you know, getting your fish, fish totally wrapped in a knot and squished all over again. You know, there's, there's certain things that you're like, oh, okay, we have to go through the desensitization phase once again. And that's just, again, it's just reminding your body that there's, there's no threat. There's no damage, um, or, uh, danger that, needs to be excited from the exposure that it's it's getting again. I have another story about Fagan's pain tolerance from tour that I think I'm going to share right now. <laughs> so there is this, the culture of the roadies, like the roadies on the Motley Crue Kiss tour are just like the roadiest of roadie guys. <laughs> Tatted, pierced, like... If you, if you do something embarrassing in front of them, you're never going to live it down, like ever. These guys, but they're also go to bat for you. And, you know, they, they're, they're real, real amazing humans. But there's just culture around the roadies that every city you hit, you know, they're like trying to find the new tattoo parlor. 
<laughs> like they're trying to get a tat from every city in the in the world, and they want to add on, they want to color in, blah blah blah. So I don't know what city we were in, and you guys, I do not have a mark of ink on my body. I'm not into it. I don't like the paint. I, the, the idea of like putting ink and needles in my body for as a choice is crazy. <laughs> <laughs> like I don't even color my hair. You know what I'm saying? I don't do any of it. <laughs> so, we love you for it, Carrie. We love you for yeah, it. Yeah. I love that I can be myself too. You know, I don't need to do any of those things to fit in. <laughs> be myself. So I don't know what city it is, but Fagan's like, I'm going with, you know, Roadie X, Y, and Z to go to the tattoo parlor. I'm like, cool. What are you getting worked on? She's like, my hands. I'm like, you know, the top of your hands? Like that, like what part of your hands? <laughs> she is going to get a tattoo on her index finger to her thumb, like in that ridge, like on the palm side. She's going to tattoo like a sentence or something, like on that L. She's got like a ropes, she got like a chains performance that night. <laughs> or was it the day before, Fagan? It may have been on her day off performance but um it wasn't the first time it's happened so. <laughs> <laughs> I mean it was definitely like if it wasn't the day of it was the day before and I'm sitting there I don't know I'm at breakfast or something we're catering and I'm like doesn't that need like a couple days to settle how's it gonna feel she's like it's fine and it was you didn't have any discomfort from like Using your hands, and she's got fingerless gloves, so even though some of that joint is covered in her leather glove, there are definitely some skin that is not covered in those gloves. And she did the, her whole seven-and-a-half-minute half chain act. She did the silks duo that she does with me and um, whatever else we did in that show. And she got those fresh tattoos, and the only thing she was bummed about is over time the ink like went away. Right? <laughs> like, did you lose it? Like, did you lose that it, tattoo because of callousing? And-, and and you're totally right. Like, that's the only thing I was bummed about is, is like, the tattoo <laughs> really, really did start to come out. Um, and, you know, it was, I, I kind of knew I was playing with fire in that regard just because your your hands, you know, the, the skin cells on your hands and your feet just left off so fast. So it was it was kind of a, not the most brilliant move in terms of, you know, <laughs> Being an aerialist and a body worker. But, <laughs> but literally, she knew it wasn't going to bother her during the performance. And it, and she was absolutely right. It didn't. So Carrie's fears were unfounded. But <laughs> yeah. it's because I know that I couldn't do that. That's where that was coming from. Fagan knew exactly what she's capable of. And now I know what Fagan's capable of. So, you know... She did stuff like that. And I was just like, who is this alien? <laughs> Gosh, I like this one. <laughs> it's so good. Um, Fagan, uh, okay, two things. Do you have a good tour story to finish up with? And if you have any other really, really smart scientific points mm. to close out with for this topic? Yeah, you know, um, <laughs> just because we're here. <laughs> uh, the the thing that actually on, on that that run that um, 
was the most painful or, or discomforting experience um, was, uh, and it relates to this topic. Um, it's the only time it's ever happened to me is, you know, Carrie and I, we did five shows a week um, when we were with Motley. And to me, that kind of falls like a little bit in the middle of the road, right? Um, you might have kind of corporate where it's a bit of a one-off or, um, you know, uh, you might be doing multiple shows in a week, but you might not be doing your same act every single um, night of the week. And then you might have the other end of that spectrum where maybe you're working at Cirque du Soleil and you're doing a couple of shows a night or... Um, you're doing, you're working at a theme park or destination park of some sort, and they might be doing three to five shows a day. Um, so I kind of feel like we're landing right there in the middle, right? Just for a concept for um, exposure and frequency to our, our apparatuses. And um, it was the very last drop I had on, on chains. And to be honest, I don't remember the name of it or what it was called, but I remember at the very end, um, I, I was coming into uh, an extra layer of a hip key and I had to bring my top foot through um, so I could, you know, access this next layer. And there was such little slack at the top of the chain and, um, you know, chains aren't very malleable once again. So there's not a lot of movement. Um, and I had to brush my foot uh, through this, this very small little, uh, corner to, to get up and around and night after night after night, I was doing this and what happened, this is a perfect example of kind of like more of the, a little bit of the long-term exposure to some of the soft tissue damage is, uh, what would normally be like, uh, a superficial kind of bruise or contusion of some sort is it became a hematoma. And this was probably about half the size of a softball, if not, uh, or excuse me, tennis Can you softball. explain for the listeners what a hematoma is? Yeah, a hematoma is just uh, really an, a, a, a different type of contusion, a different type of bruising. It essentially means that in that four healing phase stages that we went through is that the inflammation was not getting pulled out, that the blood was actually um, now outside the damaged blood vessels where we want it to actually stain. It was definitely a very large, again, like half the size of a tennis ball or like three quarters of the size of a tennis ball at the, like the front of, of like the top of my foot, um, which made getting through the chains even harder because now I have like more surface areas, how I felt. Um, but that was painful. That was enough that I was just like, how to navigate this while we're on the road. Um, so just simple kind of rice measures that so we're aware of rest, ice, uh, compression, elevation. And thankfully that was a short enough run that I was able to kind of get through, um, that cycle without it being anything more than, than a, you know, severe contusion or hematoma. Um, uh, but that was of all the things that was the one where I was just like, yep, now I'm uncomfortable. <laughs> You're basically doing like a thread the needle, right? The pole is there and you have to get the knee through the knee through falling with the foot. Yeah. Perfect. Thank you for the words. I, I miss our, I, I miss our nerdy aerial conversations. <laughs> they just filled my soul with so much happiness. We Fagan. had fun, Carrie. We had so we much We have so fun. much fun. And Fagan is the type of person that we could talk for hours. I don't even know what we talked about. <laughs> we probably talked about this stuff, you guys. We're so nerdy with it. Um, do you have any uh, on-the-road stories be besides your huge hematoma? I mean, I would like when uh, 
you know, Nikki Six and Tommy Lee would sit down at catering with us at breakfast. That was always an experience. That that's a you really know? good reminder for sure. For me, it was always really interesting sharing the stage with you know these iconic people that are almost character caricatures in life because mm. you know th- they've been famous for so long, and you have like random conversations over the. Um, you know, about the catering and then you're on stage with them and they're like, you almost died, but it was cool being with you, you know? <laughs> and um, I remember in in dressing room time, like it would be like, you know, all the doors are open and we're kind of all hanging out in our own dressing rooms. And Gene Simmons would just walk by and like give us this really weird, crazy look because he's a weird dude and he's funny. He just wanted to get a <laughs> laugh and you would just walk by He's such the ham. He totally was. Yeah. Yeah. So, Uh I mean, it was just, it was fun. And, you know, you'd be in the, oh, you know what I recently found out? So Austin, our, one of our sound guys, like, you know, we're still friends. We're, we're on, we're friends on Facebook. And I just really, he just told one of a tour story, but from his perspective, it was the night we were in the tiniest town. It wasn't Reno. It was another town and we were staying in a casino. And like the backstory to like what everybody did that night <laughs> could have been a book. <laughs> because like <laughs> him and five other people like went on this like type of night where like somebody got a face tattoo and there's a tiger, you know, (laughs) it was like the hangover three. And I remember that night I got takeout from the downstairs like restaurant and sat and watched, um, I think Nikki played poker. Oh, wow. Okay. Some poker. Uh And then I went upstairs and I watched say yes to the dress because I was planning for my wedding. That's what I did. But then, but then other groups of people, you know, like, we're in the hangover three, you know, Motley Crue edition, <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, yeah, it's funny. Uh-huh. Isn't it? Yeah. So, I laugh because I'm so not surprised. That was no, definitely crew times. No. Yeah. And I spent a lot of time reading books, like a big nerd and going to sleep early. One memory that, that stands out. It's not, it's not exciting as a, a you know, a, a night after the show kind of memory. But like Carrie said, it was just always so epic to be have these moments in passing with um, uh, Tommy Lee or Nikki Six. And but Mick was one of the ones that was often pretty pretty quiet and um, often his his own uh, a tour bus much of the time. But Mick Mars, Mick Mars of the crew, yes, yep, uh, good old Mick Mars, man. And I came out on on Mick Mars's side at the the close of the show for for bows and. Uh, I just remember one night he just looks right at me and he just goes, you guys are the stars of the show. He's like, they're standing for you ladies. And I was like, Oh, Nick, like you're amazing. Here's this like iconic rock hall of fame guitarist, like absolutely an incredible musician, you know, has lived such a full life of, uh, of just producing amazing, amazing material. And, uh, it was a sincere moment. Like he genuinely meant it, you know? And, Mick Mars is just always one of those people where I'm just like, you have such a heart of gold. And he was just like one of those one-liners kind of people. Um, and it just kind of marks that tour in, in such a beautiful way of, of just really feeling included. You know, Motley Crue was definitely a family experience. It was, it was a great, great time of our lives for sure. Oh yeah. One of my best memories 
in my in my life. Just not even being on the stage, but speaking of Mick, um, the number we would do after his guitar solo was um, Kickstart My Heart. And so I'd be backstage, you were on the other side, so I never talked to you. I had uh, the stage manager and then the rigger on my side, and we would just, we were at the right angle just to see him lit up with that one um, spotlight on him. And we would just watch him play this guitar solo every single night. And I just like remember sitting there one time, like just never forget this moment. Just let it live in your mind of, of how perfect it feels. Like just mm. listening to him play and watching it and hearing the audience. And then I get to go out and close a show, you know, with you. And then we all take a huge bow and just a huge arena tour. Such a good memory. A once in a lifetime kind of experience will always... Always remember for sure. Thanks, Fagan, for being so generous with your knowledge on this. Um, a lot of times with stuff like this, if you try to find this information online, you might not find it because it, it's it's about marrying the concepts Hi. to our applications, which is not regularly studied. I love that we can put these things to, uh, you know, these ideas to real things in our lives, you know, these apparatuses, because we are experiencing a lot of exposure and we don't really know very much about it. So this will add hopefully to the community's knowledge, which is great. Fagan, where can people find you? Or do you want to be have anonymity. <laughs> I'm I'm slowly entering out of my my shell. Um, I I took a really lovely uh, I think three year hiatus from Instagram um, and just really uh, dove deep into the books. As you guys can tell, me and Carrie love to geek out on this stuff. And so, um, but I'm I'm pulling all this material together for some new stuff in the works. Hopefully, we'll kind of come out here either at the end of the year, um, beginning of next. Um, so yeah, you can find me on my website at um, soulflylife.com and uh, check me out on Instagram. Might be a little little pause button there for a little while, but stuff will be coming out here shortly. Cool. I'll put that in the show notes. Um, yeah, this is amazing. Thank you so much for being generous and I just miss you. Yes, <laughs> oh. I know. And look, I have a human. Oh, you made a human. <laughs> I made a human. Isn't she, isn't she just the best? She's adorable. Thank you so much to Fagan Harlow for being Yay. here. Yeah. And if you go to the show notes, you can grab my ebook for free. It comes out on July 1st. You'll get that as a free gift for being a podcast listener. Thanks so much to Asa Watkins for our music and post-production. And if you'll give me a five-star rating and review anywhere you get your podcasts, it really helps other people find me more easily. Thanks so much for listening. You've been listening to the Expecting Aerialist Podcast.